Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the New Type Vocab. This is issue eight, if counting from the written editions. I'm still counting from the written editions, rather. Um, it took me a bit to figure out what I wanted to talk about today. Um, I thought I had an idea, and I lost it in this uh, drive to try to reduce the amount of writing I do around my thinking. Um, it's getting a little bit tricky trying to remember things, but it's also a bit of a memory workout because it's like you have this fully formed idea and then it evaporates into thin air once you need it like a dream. But um, I guess that's still also part of the process, right? Um, one of the one of the things that has been happening this week has, I mean, at least with me since the last time, is um, I've been working like I mentioned on this hyperculture project and I've been work collaborating with, um, Carmen Ho, um, who's based in London on a kind of investigation, I guess. We're still, we're still working out, um, we're still experimenting. So I don't want to go in too deep into it because, um, it would make much sense, but essentially it is based around the, the ideas of how does or how does knowledge generation happen? How does knowledge transmission happen? And um, the creation of ideas in oral societies, you know. <clears throat> um, and we've been we've been working a lot with diagrams, with physical models as a way of thinking, as opposed to writing and notation as um, a way of um, thinking instead of abstracting our thoughts that way. What I think at least I'm doing in this um, ex collaborative experiment or on my, my own side, I'm trying to use the, use the objects, use the drawings to trigger thoughts and then feed that back into what I do and then constantly to try and see what patterns emerge and what patterns reinforce each other. Um, I'm a really big believer in patterns occurring and reoccurring throughout nature in different domains, not just in fixed domains. There's a great book called um, Scale by Jeffrey West. And uh, I, I can recommend this to anybody. It's, um, you know, written in a very approachable style. It's not like some hardcore academic tome. But um, in it, he, he talks about how there are these... Um, scale factors, I guess, like numbers that occur in different places, you know, show that there are patterns for how things work. Um, I think one of the key examples in the book has to do with um, how animals of different sizes, you can see that they tend to, there's a, there's a pattern or proportion relating to that from size to things like their heartbeats, how many heartbeats, how fast the heartbeats, um, and things like this. And this is across like species and things, you know, which is really fascinating considering comparing something like an elephant in terms of its organic sort of um, layout and how it operates, what it eats, where it lives, something like a rat that is, you know, obviously sort of constructed in a different way and there's still these relationships. So um, I'm, I'm definitely a big believer that, that in nature and not just nature as um, it pertains to organic um, creatures, but also inorganic nature. Um, tends to have these these laws that are based around like patterns and proportions to things, you know. Which is why I guess we also look at you hear all this stuff about mathematics, you know, 
um, in one of the previous newsletters. I think I linked um, an essay on eon.co um, talking about how nature performs mathematics, you know, coral reefs, even just flowers growing with Fibonacci sequences, you know, that there are all these um, things that occur naturally in nature. It's like nature doing mathematics as opposed to um, having to create a, a notation system to be able to capture it, right? Um, and this feeds into something that I've been working on for new type in one of the worlds that we're building, <clears throat> or it is the world we're building, which is um, a world I hope to be able to invite you guys to participate in soon. Um, and one of the things we've been looking at is how to use naturally occurring systems, whether that is organisms like slime molds or mountains or gravity to actually perform calculations and computing as opposed to having to sit down, you know, with a silicon-based computer or a calculator of some sort or, you know, with a pen and paper to actually do these kinds of calculations, but being able to recognize them in naturally occurring phenomena and using that to inform ourselves. Um, this is something that keys into African fractals, you know, um, which I shared a while back and just this idea of how oral cultures in on the continent of Africa were able to, you know, determine the idea of fractals, the existence of fractal re relationships, and were able to use them in daily life, <clears throat> both on the social organizing scale and even just in terms of crafting. Um, and I think that there's something really interesting there. So this ties back into this idea of oral cultures and how do how does knowledge get generated? What what do you need? What kind of mindset do you do you need to have to be able to even see these things and be able to learn from them? So it's something that um definitely still you know experimenting with, but at least so far the results have been really phenomenal. I, I don't think I've been this kind of giddy about something in a while. Um it's I'm tentative. I'm trying to curb my enthusiasm, um, but I'm sure by next week I'll be jumping all over the walls because we're supposed to have a um, a bit of a recap soon, just to sort of you know look at our results and how how we've been feeling about the whole thing. Um, and this brings me to talking about the need for new institutions, the need for new ways of learning. <clears throat> different ways of learning, maybe I should say, because some of these things are not necessarily new. Um, they, ju they just occur in new configurations, maybe. Um, and I think about institutions like the Black Mount, like Black Mountain College in the, in the U.S., um, which, which was in the 30s and um, ran for a while, even like the Bauhaus in Germany, um, the Zaria Art Society as well. In the, um, in the, in the, in the sixties. And, you know, there's so much, um, there's been so many of these movements that keep starting and stopping, you know, and it's clear that there's a, there's a drive, there's a, there seems to be some kind of desire for a way of learning and sharing information and creating new things that constantly seems to recur throughout different societies across time. And I think it's necessary. I think we need another one. At least speaking um, broadly, you know, <clears throat> there's a there's something I was reading earlier today, and it's just 
I mean, I guess it, no, I mean, I guess it is a pretty, it was a pretty bleak kind of article, sort of, or at least it could be seen that way, talking about humanity and our current responses to various crises so far, whether that's pandemics, et cetera, et cetera, and also what is on the horizon, you know, with regards to climate change and future pandemics and all these things. Um, I don't want to go into that today because I'm sure, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what kinds of mental states various people are in. But the the takeaway from a lot of that was that, you know, we 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 really are at a cross crossroads, you know. Um as bad as it is right now, this is not as bad as it could be. Um and probably in all likelihood will be in a few years. Um so we have to make a decision about what kind of long lasting changes we want to be able to make as a as a <clears throat> as a as cultures, as societies, as a species, to be able to mitigate the worst effects of these things and being able to come out of them faster, right? Um and uh, yeah, everybody has I'm sure has listened to podcasts, has watched, you know, attended webinars and watched videos and read books talking about how, you know, these things are supposed to happen soon if we need to, you know, we need to transition, etc. Um, and, you know, in a way, the article is also kind of optimistic because it was also talking about how, you know, contrary, everything to the contrary, our biology and the way we behave, our evolutionary psychology stuff, we've been able to at least make some attempt at effecting some changes, at least with regards to the COVID-19, right? So it's, it's interesting that, okay, maybe is there some momentum we can ride, you know, in order to do this? And I think, one of the things that is missing in this conversation, for at least for at least so far as I know, is where education comes in. How do we start working on the way we, we actually generate ideas and, and you know how do we how do we teach each other? How do we learn from each other? What are the things we take forward into into the world, into the society, right? Um and I think this is of utmost importance because there's so much re unlearning and relearning that has to happen right now. Um, if we are all in a situation where we are panicking and we don't know what is happening, we've been destabilized. Um, I don't think the only learning that is necessary is the learning that is like, oh, okay, this is how you cope and this is what to do next, right? There's There also has to be a very strong component around how do we reset so that we can actually feel what is happening around us in a very genuine way without expectations, you know, without prejudice, so that we can approach it on the level that it really is on, right? And we can do something with that information. We can do something about it. Um, so I think about something like Desire Out Society, for example, and it was like a response, right, to the – that is it. For, for those who don't know, um, it was uh, – a group of undergraduate students in the in the art departments in in um, in in the university in Nigeria in northern Nigeria Amadibello University and they came together to basically create um, well in their terminology I guess new art they had this idea of natural synthesis where it was essentially and you know new types also founded on similar values of like a fusion of indigenous art with you know a, a selection of western ideas and western you know um, notions of what contemporary art could be or is um 
And they did this as a response because they felt that local indigenous art was being um, superseded by, you know, Western art. And there was a need to be able to keep both in circulation and come up with with um, new, new, new ways of being able to sort of create and think about Nigerian art. And I think art is something that is um, really important now because art is also a way of thinking. It's a way of um, engaging with the world. It's a way of investigating the world that has been seen to be almost frivolous these days, you know, um, compared to like the scientific method, for example. It's like, oh, this is way more practical than art because you can't directly apply art. Um, but I, I think this is a mistake and I, um, I think there are a lot of people who also believe so, um, that art in itself is something that enriches and also widens the perspective, you know, or, or the, the, the potential number of perspectives that are available to a person and can inform how we think about things and how we relate to things. So it's, uh, it's something that I'm really, really interested in doing with new type, um, this idea of trying to explore what, uh, new you know what what kind of what what does a new learning environment look like right um and when we when um the the more i was doing this 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 experiment this week uh, and earlier for hyperculture you know around working with my hands and with um, drawing to be able to facilitate thinking and knowledge generation and combining that with an oral component like this, just like this ongoing experiment with the newsletter, um, it, it really, I, I really feel like new things happened for me, right? New things I hadn't personally experienced, um, in any kind of intentional way, you know, like any way I'd paid attention to. I think that there is something of value here. Um, you know, when, when I was talking to Carmen, you know, as we were kind of doing an exchange uh, regarding this experiment this week, um, something came to me and it was that this is the kind of world in a way that I want to live in. You know, it feels like it almost feels science fiction, you know, um, a world where you can go from one place to another and the way people talk, communicate, and generates information, knowledge, etc., is alien to the way you do it. And it's not to say that the concerns are different. You know, the content may be similar, um, or have a lot of overlaps, right? You know, it may be very mundane things like, oh, a shopping list or whatever. But the way those things are codified is different. And in that, in that codification, there are all these emergent properties that one cannot even begin to imagine that can happen, you know, in terms of how the society is structured, in terms of how the day is structured, in terms of how uh, people relate with each other. Um, I was on a call with um, some people from the British Council and the uh, Ellen MacArthur Foundation and Materium uh, and some cohorts, uh, fellow cohort uh, members as well um, from a circular design thing I, I traveled to in London um, last year. And one of them, um, Zoe, hi Zoe, if you're listening to this, um shared a link talking about um kipu um, um incan kipu which are these threads strings that they that they tie knots into at different intervals um and it is something really fascinating because initially it was just seen as a kind of counting system but 
as as anthropologists and other 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 investigators have been looking into it and trying to figure out like what do these things mean and there's been a suspicion that they were not just about counting but they were also about communicating way more dense information than just numbers um and you know across different you know um, places in the Incan Empire and Incan Empire has been really noted for being pretty sophisticated right um it's it it was really interesting that some of them found some really complex looking people and I'll include this this article as well in the in the newsletter and they they were they were found finding clues as to what these things meant you know including like things like signatures by the people who the person who tied the kipu and other things you know and the kipu was not just a visual thing it was also something that was very tactile because they used different kinds of thread different kinds of um string to be able to to tie them and make the knots and weave into the actual like rope itself um so there was so much dense information inside this 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 um this knotted rope right and it's fascinating that you learn this not only are you learning the language of the people you're also training your tactile senses you know your sense of touch you can you can look at it and even your sense of being able to determine color you can just look at this thing and some of it maybe even if it ends up phonetic even though I, I mean, and I knew nothing about this clearly beyond what I've read. Um, but I, 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 I suspect that the trends in some of the researchers thinking, um, to, are to look for phonetic kind of things where each thread maybe corresponds to like a letter of some sort or, or what have you. I think maybe a lot of maybe some Eurocentricism, maybe just because that's how they codify information. Um, but even if, if even if it turns out this way, I think it's still really fascinating. Um, and, you know, one may be tempted to sort of immediately start thinking about efficiency, you know, and how, oh, you know, maybe communicating in, you know, in this may not be as efficient as, you know, just writing it out or, you know, or, or what have you, or maybe it doesn't translate to as many medium as possible. But I think that's not a, that's not an argument really that, that is worth following too far, unless you're specifically just treating it in a kind of capitalistic framework where everything has to be super fast, um, and frictionless. Or if you're just looking at ways of exploring the world and encountering the world, then it's not about efficiency, um, just in the same way that it's way more efficient to maybe drive somewhere or take a helicopter and to hike up a mountain, right? But, <clears throat> you know, in that, in that process of hiking, there's a different experience of life that you get and, an impact on your body as well, and a whole host of other complex things that happen, both in terms of to the environment as well, not just to you, right? You hiking may also help to um, seed plants, for example, that you, that you walk past, you know, um, as they stick to your to your trousers and you transmit them to other places, you know. So there's a whole bunch of engagement that happens that one cannot even begin to start quantifying. Um, but yes, I, I think this idea of being able to cultivate different ways of knowing and different ways of, 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 of engaging with the world is something that we need to start doing now, almost as a matter of urgency even. So um, I encourage everyone that's listening to this to, to start asking themselves, you know, what are the things that one takes for granted? How do they, how do you begin opening or reopening yourself to more of the possibilities that are around you? And even if they're not directly around you, you can look in the past, you can look in the future. These are things that can happen and you can start building a world around which knowledge is generated in a different way. And I, I, I'm looking at this as, you know, the way of just treating things purely like, like 
all, all of them like hypotheses. You know, you try something and not every way of approaching knowledge generation and transmission will work, but the act of engaging in this thing will teach you something. You will learn something and you'll be able to apply that learning to something else and you can keep trying it. You may end up with something that could be really unique and really beautiful um, in its own way. So, yeah, this is um, essentially what I wanted to talk about today. I'll share um, the various links in the, in the newsletter, like I mentioned, um, along with any kind of relevant stuff. Um, there's also, um, if you don't mind, I want to also try out something. And this also has to do with different ways of seeing the world. So I thought I would now read um, some excerpts from a short story um, called The Enemy Within. It's not presented as a story as such, but as um, a report from the from a department within the Vatican, for a committee rather set up by the Vatican to the Pope. Um, it's quite interesting. It's by one of uh, my favorite sci-fi authors. And he's also the person I, I referenced um, reading recently, talking, you know, presenting maybe sort of pessimistic view about um, what is coming down the line in the future, you know, for us as a species and maybe the planet as well. Uh, but anyway, I, I thought this was interesting as it related to the idea of institutions and different ways of seeing and also presented something that I hadn't considered before, which was this idea about the differences between science and various religions. So I, I encourage you to read the whole thing. It's not much longer than the excerpt I'm going to read but it also has some nice um, diagrams and things to further the, the building of the future that's being presented. Okay, so after this, um, I would like to wish you all a splendid week ahead. And yeah, take care. The Limits of Science The purview of science is a narrow one. It deals only with questions of how the cosmos works. The deeper issues of why reality even exists and of our rightful place therein are beyond its reach. The church is not threatened by the procession of discoveries and insights hailing from the scientific method because worldly matters are not within its domain. As St. Gould famously opined, science and faith occupy non-overlapping magisteria. It is no more the place of the church to make testable hypotheses than it is the place of science to pass judgment on matters of the spirit. It is perhaps too infrequently noted, however, that science can claim no better understanding than the church, even in the matter of how the universe works. This is a surprisingly uncontroversial view, even among scientists, most of whom admit not only that science cannot claim to accurately describe reality, but that it cannot even claim to approach greater accuracy as it progresses. Yes, Einstein's physics produced more accurate predictions than Newton's. But a model in which celestial bodies are fixed to a series of concentric crystal spheres produces more accurate predictions of planetary motion than one which posits only a single sphere. Is it more realistic? So while science may produce ever more accurate predictions about how reality behaves under known conditions, it can never claim to understand what lies within that black box. A century after its introduction, Smolin's breeder multiverse remains untested and untestable even in principle, a mathematical construct to be taken on faith no less than the existence of God himself. Ultimately, all science is mere correlation. For that matter, in the time before science, people turned to religion to understand the physical universe, 
and while the thought of deities hurling lightning bolts may seem fanciful to modern minds, it was then, as science claims to be now, the best explanation available to limited human understanding. The fundamental difference between science and scripture is not, therefore, that scientific insights are necessarily more realistic than those based upon faith. The difference is no more and no less than predictive power. Scientific insights have proven to be better predictors than spiritual ones, at least in worldly matters. They prevail not because they are true, but simply because they work. The Bicameral Threat The bicameral cult represents a stark anomaly in this otherwise consistent landscape. We have exhaustively reviewed their publications and the predictions contained therein. Their methodologies appear to be explicitly faith-based, and they venture unapologetically into metaphysical realms which defy empirical analysis. Yet they yield results with consistently more predictive power than conventional science. How they do this is not known. Our best evidence suggests some kind of rewiring of the temporal lobe in a way that amplifies their connection to the divine. It would be dangerously naive to regard this as a victory for traditional religion. It is not. It is a victory for a radical sect barely half a century old, and the cost of that victory has been to demolish the wall between science and faith. The Church's concession of the physical realm informed the historic armistice which has followed faith and reason. The Church's concession of the physical realm informed the historic armistice which has allowed faith and reason to coexist in separate and inviolable domains to this day. One may find it heartening to see faith ascendant once again across the human spectrum, but it is not our faith. Its hand still guides lost sheep away from the soulless empiricism of secular science, but the days in which it guided them into the loving arms of our Savior are waning. The bicameral order does not proselytize, preferring to stay out of the public eye, a suspicious sign in and of itself. Nonetheless, its ability to work miracles on demand cannot help but draw notice. While the ultimate consequences of their arrogance will be evident to anyone familiar with Genesis' metaphor of the forbidden fruits, the inevitable near-term impact is to put more vulnerable institutions at a significant disadvantage. Under current circumstances, therefore, we foresee the collapse of the Abrahamic religions, possibly even of the Dharmic and Taoist faiths to which the bicamerals claim at least tenuous kinship within as little as a single generation. Indeed, it may already be too late for the Eastern faiths, thanks to their ongoing embrace of the so-called Nirvana Initiative, to the best of our knowledge, none who have joined that soul-destroying network have ever freed themselves, and whatever entity they form collectively has yet to communicate with the outside world in any meaningful way. Okay, thank you, and have a great day ahead.